By those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. That's Leviticus 10.3, and that's God speaking. And when it comes to worship, there is only one way to approach him. And that is in the exact way which he has prescribed in his word. As we continue on in our discussion of the second commandment, we're going to explain the application of the second commandment to the public worship of God's people. So stay tuned with tonight on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. Alright, thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. As usual, joining us on our discussion is Reverend Adam Kalustian from Ontario United Reformed Church and Reverend Moses Genbazian from Pasadena United Reformed Church, and I'm John Sautel, church planter out in Walnut, California. We've been talking about uh, the Ten Commandments. Last time we started uh, our show talking about the Second Commandment then moved on into the whole issue of how that applies to worship, and we promised you at the end of that discussion that we're going to continue to talk about some of the uh, more specific applications of that command to our worship just to sort of review where we were at, we were saying that the second commandment doesn't just simply prohibit uh, the making of idols for worshiping the true God, but it basically prohibits all false worship devised by man by which we worship God. And we're saying that if God didn't tell us to worship him in a particular specific way, we cannot do it. And we showed you some biblical texts uh, to back that up. And this week we want to get more specific. So as we look at the scriptures... What did he say to do? Yeah, well, there are some people, John, say, well, okay, maybe in the Old Testament he gives in the Pentateuch specific instructions about how he ought to be worshipped. But when you come to the New Testament, you really don't see a directory for how we ought to worship, and you don't see him sort of outlining the essential elements of public worship. But we got to address that, first of all. Think about the context of the new church. You have the apostles and the elders alive at the time. They are able to direct uh, the worship, and so they don't find it necessary to sit down and write a directory of worship for us. But it doesn't mean that we should not look at those documents that reflect that worship and use those to discern what elements the apostles require. Okay, you bring up a good point, and I hear this often. Well, there's no book of Leviticus in the New Testament, so how can we be sure what God wants us to do? And, And as you say, it was under... Uh, the oversight of these apostles. And i ask you a question. Uh, in terms of framing the way the apostles would have seen worship, what would have been, in their um, common experience, a way that you would worship God outside of the temple? Do we have any way of understanding how the Scripture might indicate uh, what form of worship was being used at that time outside the temple? Well, first you have to remember that these were men who had been raised as Jews, and so they were very familiar with the synagogue tradition. So certainly that would have formed their thinking process. But the one really clear example we have is on the day of Pentecost when you have Peter preaching that great evangelistic sermon, and then we are told what the result of it is. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we are told that those who have been converted, those who have been brought into the covenant community and are now baptized— They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
So here we're given a model of how believers act when they are together. Okay. And so that is what we commonly refer to as our four principles. We generally call those things that Moses read from Acts 2.42 elements, doctrine, uh, fellowship, prayers, and so forth. What exactly do we learn from that in terms of the application to our, our worship services? Well, I want to back up a step, though. I mean, Moses pointed out something very interesting, that when the apostles were ordering the worship of the New Testament church, they were very familiar, yes, with the synagogue, but they were also familiar with the temple worship of the Old Testament. And they made a decision, obviously, that they were not going to follow the temple pattern of worship, but they were going to follow the synagogue pattern of worship. And therefore, they took the basic elements of synagogue worship and instituted them in the New Testament church. And that's what Moses is talking about. So when you're reading, say, the Gospels, when you're reading Acts, when you're reading the New Testament letters of Paul and reading the Revelation, giving the picture of the heavenly worship, what you try and figure out from that is, okay, what things did they take and make as a regular part of the public worship of God's people, and what things did they not bring in to the worship? So, for example, to answer your question, John, you know, apply it to today. What did they do in worship? Well, they did not take the elaborate instrumentation and professional music that was present in the temple and bring it into the worship of the New Testament church. Instead, they sang from the Psalter of the Old Testament without the accompaniment of all the bells and whistles that was followed under the temple pattern. And that's a pretty big claim that you're making there. But what do we base that on? Well, quite frankly, the history of the church. One of the things we can look at is to the early history of the church and say, how was this understood and brought forward? And one of the things we know are the many controversies that existed. And as regards worship, that wasn't one of the areas of big controversy. There seems to have been a uniform practice of the people gathering together for the hearing of the word and the breaking of the bread. And the idea of music was actually rather foreign to them. Okay, well, let me ask you, is that what's in view here? The very first thing it says in Acts 2.42, it says they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Is that what we're talking about here? That would definitely be the preaching of the word, yeah. And we can see that also in Romans 10, where Paul says the preaching is the primary means by which God will call in sinners to salvation. Right, the scripture reading, and then the explanation of that reading of scripture. That's what happened in the synagogue, and clearly the apostles said, okay, what? one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to follow that pattern. We're going to read the scripture publicly, and then we're going to explain it. We are going to then pray publicly to God, like was done in the synagogue. We are going to sing the Psalms, just like God did in the synagogue. We are going to collect offerings uh, for the poor, for the Christians who needed relief. You see that repeated a number of times in, in Acts and in the epistles. So we have, basically, the apostles are setting, the apostles and elders of the New Testament church are setting the regulative principle of worship for God's people in these elements. Obviously, our point is that we should not feel free because of the regulative principle of worship to add or to take away from the elements in worship which God himself, through his apostles and elders, has prescribed for the New Testament church in her worship. So the, the just the argument is here is that the, the apostles are outlining in broad strokes what kinds of things must be done in the worship of God in order to honor and glorify him. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk about the specifics of applying these things which the apostles have shown us in the word of God. Stay tuned with us after the break. There is no greater joy in the Christian's life than to worship God according to his word, and there is nowhere better in the San Gabriel Valley to do this than at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. So come join us this Sunday at 9 a.m. and at 6 p.m. at 226 West Colorado Boulevard in Arcadia. You can call us at 866-99-UNITED or look us up on the web at sinnersaint.org. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge.
Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian. I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. We're back here after the break. We promised you we're going to get into a more specific application of some of the things surrounding uh, these so-called elements of worship that we read for you from, say, Acts 2.42, other places in the New Testament. Uh, but when we get into those and the specific application of them, what are some of the controversies that are maybe out there that, that are part of this context of correctly understanding and applying them? Yeah, you know, it's interesting to point out, you bring up this idea of controversy. Well, I mean, everybody agrees that the elements that we've listed are part of public worship. I mean, it's interesting, note any branch of Christianity, if you go into one of their worship services, will have these basic elements in their in worship. some semblance. They're You're going to find preaching and prayers, right? Right, and the singing and, and the collecting of offerings for the poor. The interesting thing is that it's the controversy comes in when there are other things that get added in and around those elements, and then churches begin to fight about what they should do and what they shouldn't okay. do. Okay, so you're noting well that there's a common basic denominator agreement, but then there's this broadening. Why in the world, then, if we can all agree at some level of this common denominator about what's supposed to be there, why are there these other things in there? Well, first of all, why don't we talk about what are some of these other things? And the major traditions that we deal with, obviously, are Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism and the Reformed understanding. Among the Lutherans, something that we discussed last time, which is that which is not clearly prohibited is acceptable if it's found to be beneficial. So this idea that it's not so much that God regulates every element of worship, but he prohibits the things that he does not like. So that would be a Lutheran understanding. And the Roman Catholic understanding would be Whatever we do is right because we're the guardians of the tradition. So it's irrelevant how you think Scripture says it. It's what we do that makes it correct. All right, so what kinds of things would be added? Okay, well, the prescribed element, the public reading of Scripture and the preaching of God's Word by those called to that task. What has been added to that and sometimes given even in the name of that? You'll see things like, say, drama in worship, skits. You will see things uh, like dramatic, artistic presentation of biblical truth. You will see liturgical dance as an expression of the joy that we all share. So you see what it is. People say, well, we can instruct people in the best way that we think they will be able to receive it, and therefore that is appropriate to the worship of God. And the, the Reformed Regulative Principle of Worship says, no, 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 preaching and the public reading of Scripture has been instituted by God, not these other so-called forms of instruction. Yeah, and, and what will happen here is you can challenge people on that. You say, well, why are you doing this? Why, why are you adding skits and dramas and videos and so forth in there? And the answer is always going to be, well, because the, it's obvious you're supposed to get the word out there, but God didn't necessarily prescribe the mode. Sure, it could be preaching, but it could be anything that communicates the substance of the word. Right. Some people so some people argue, well actually you can consider video presentations and dramas and skits and personal testimonies. You can actually consider those preaching. Now our response to that is, wait a minute. You have to defend that idea from the word of God. Otherwise, worship just becomes whatever anybody wants to do and there is no indication in scripture. In fact, the indication is quite the opposite 
that preaching was ever understood in any broader sense than the public reading and proclamation by those who were called and trained to do it. Okay, let me be clear about this. We're not just simply saying that the regulative principle applies to what must be done in worship, that there should be a presentation of the word, there should be singing, there should be prayers. But it also applies to the very specific way in which the word is given or presented. So it can't just be a, t- a personal testimony or a dramatic presentation or a video. No, the word must be presented in the exact way of the reading of the word and the preaching of the word. That is how specifically the regulative principle is applied to worship. Yes, and the onus is on the person who would introduce a different mode, supposedly a different mode or a different form of the preaching, to show that biblically that is authorized by God. And quite frankly, when you look in the Scripture, you do not find those things. Some people say, well, because in the culture of that time, you know, those things weren't common as a way of reaching people. And that simply also is not true. As if drama is brand new in the 20th century, nobody ever thought of that. As if personal testimony is brand yeah, new, there, there were no dr- there were no dramas in the New Testament era. No, <laughs> the culture, just like today. I mean, sure, the the technology is a little different, but the various kinds of things that are out there in the culture were present in that day, but they were not authorized for public worship by the apostles and the elders. And we should not feel free to introduce them into worship. That is false worship. Let me ask if it prescribes a certain mode of presentation of the word, and that is preaching, well, who can preach? The ones who can preach, according to Romans 10, are the ones who are sent out to preach. So there is some form in which the church is supposed to designate certain individuals, and those individuals are to be set apart to represent the church and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul makes very clear. It is these people whom God has appointed, and the remainder of the people are called to worship God in gratitude for what they have heard and received. Now, I'll tell you what, this was a radical idea for me, because maybe you, like me, had been taught from a very young age that it was every Christian's duty to go out and preach the gospel. And what that meant was that every time you spoke about the truth of Scripture to other people, when you were giving witness of your faith, you were preaching the gospel to them. Now, that's simply not true. And it took me a long time for this to get through my head. There is a place for our personal witness to other people about the truths of the Christian faith, to be sure. But that is not preaching. We challenge you to show us anywhere in the Scripture where preaching is defined as something else than the ordained servants of God standing before God's people in the public worship to proclaim his truths. It's not there. So the regular principle, in other words, not just applies to the very mode, the presentation of the word, but the actual person who is actually preaching. That is an ordained, sent person by God to proclaim uh, the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So stay tuned after the break. We're going to take up that topic of music and the public worship of God. Americans are known for their independence and self-reliance. We take little stock in other people's opinions. Americans want to examine and form our own conclusions about everything, and if something isn't to our liking, we'll fix it. These characteristics have served us well in casting off monarchies and taming the wild frontier. But are they really the best qualities for building Christ's church? At Grace Evangelical Church, we think one thing our culture doesn't need to reinvent are the tried and tested truths of Orthodox Christianity. We take delight in the faith of our fathers, in the biblical truths captured by the three forms of unity. We believe the truths of the Reformation gospel of justification by faith alone are the only solution for the multitude of problems that face America today. We invite you to come worship with us at Grace Evangelical Church. For more information, you may contact us at area code 310-782-7019. That's 310-782-7019. 
We want to thank you for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints as we've been dealing with the whole issue of the application of the Second Commandment, particularly now to uh, the worship of God's people on the Lord's Day. And we talked about last segment uh, the whole way of presenting the Word in worship. And now we're going to take up the issue of music. And we know that this is not a controversial topic at all, so we probably won't have much to say here. Well, let's go back to what the apostles and elders actually did in the New Testament church. I mean, you think that would be helpful, right? Remember... They were very familiar with the elaborate Old Testament worship in the temple with all of its professional musicians and all of its elaborate designed and trained singing. And they did not follow that. They simply sang the Old Testament songs of David, of the Psalms. That's what they did in the early church. And interestingly, they did not use any musical instruments in the worship of the early church. In fact, there were no there was no instrumental music in the Christian church used until the beginning of the ninth century. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. The apostles and elders departed from the elaborate temple music with all of its instrumentation, and they decided to sing the Old Testament Psalms of David without musical instruments. And that pattern basically carried over all the way into the ninth century. That's the 800s. Okay, now some of you out there are going to say, this sounds really strange. What are you talking about? Because when I open my Bible, I see in the New Testament, for instance, uh, Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about uh, singing and making melody in, melody in your hearts using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So, so people say, well, doesn't that mean now, okay, we'll let the first one be psalms of the Psalter, but doesn't that mean when you get to hymns, the hymns in my uh, hymn book, and when it says spiritual songs... Obviously, this is referring to all these praise and worship songs. The Maranatha. Yeah, the chorus. See, there you have. It, this is so biblical. It comes right out of Paul. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, now, uh, go ahead. One minor problem with this is that you're here ignoring everything and using your own per- current cultural understanding of these words. Paul is actually going back and looking at the titles of the Psalms in the Psalter, where they are sometimes called hymns and sometimes they are called songs. And so basically with all three, Paul is referring simply to the Psalms of David. So we have to start with an historical fact. And the fact is that the New Testament church, and then after the close of the New Testament period, all the way through the ninth century, Christian churches were singing psalms without musical instrumentation. Now, you might want to go and argue whatever you want about music from there, but you're going to have to reckon, you're going to have to deal with, you're going to have to wrestle with that fact that that's what the apostles and the elders did. And and there's good reason for it. One of the reasons why the Psalms are to be preferred above everything else is obvious. They're inspired. Don't you remember what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness? Well, if the Word is that sufficient, then why wouldn't it be the case that we would want to use the Psalms, which are inspired, which Paul says are profitable for all these things? It makes more sense to use something inspired than non-inspired. Yeah, what, let me, ha- let me put it in the form of a question. What more worthy could we sing than that which we have received directly from God himself. It's the Holy Spirit putting his glorious songs in our hearts and on our lips, and we sing praises to him. Now again, I'm sympathetic to how radical this idea sounds, because it was probably until my college years before I ever even sang one psalm. I mean, some of the choruses that I sang growing up sort of sang part of the psalms, but 
you know, in the Christian church historically, we sang the Psalms. Well, also keep in mind, one of the debates that we're having right now in the churches is, you know, should we be singing the hymns of the 1800s or should we be singing the modern praise choruses? And I think that places a false dichotomy, this idea that, oh, it's one or the other. And we're saying, no, go back to the scriptures and see if either of those categories is legitimate before you argue that, oh, I grew up with this and I prefer it, or no, this is better for evangelism today. That misses the point. The question is, what is it that God actually has said he wants done? See, this is the problem. People don't begin the argument with what God wants. They begin the argument with what they want on the assumption that, hey, I'm sanctified. I'm using sanctified common sense here. And this has been the practice of the church for, you know, for so many years. And so they all begin with this man-centered, me-centered, subjectivist kind of a principle, and then they argue from there. Well, if that's where you start, you're always going to end in a big argument because it's, it's purely going to be an appeal to my authority rather than something objective. The beauty of the regulative principle is that it's not something subjective. It's objective. It's God. It's what he said in his word. And you have to go back and, say, and ask the question, did God say to introduce your own compositions and hymns and so-called praise songs into worship. Yeah, I, I, you, you've got to get this clear to your head. And I mean, I can even knock my own tradition a little bit, the Reformed tradition that we're in today. You, you hear a lot of people arguing this in the culture. It's either traditional or contemporary worship. But you've got to understand, a couple of hundred years ago, what people defined as traditional and contemporary was different then. People in the old days were arguing, do we want to sing Hymns, hymns in the old days were seen as radical contemporary style music. As radical as the Maranatha praise songs are today. Right, but now people say, well, no, hymns represent the old style and only contemporary courses represent a new style. We're saying, look, this whole debate is framed wrong. It should be the predominance, at least, of the Psalms of David in worship versus anything else. No matter what the style, whether it's on an organ, a guitar, how long it is, how short it is, whatever, when the song was written, the point is... We have to deal with the the New Testament worship and let that regulate us. And the New Testament church was singing the Psalms. Hey, the scriptures are pretty clear. God wants to be approached in the way that he is commanded. And when that happens, he will be glorified. Worship is not about man. It's about God and about his glory. And in order to be sure that we're glorifying God, we need to worship as he has commanded in his word. That is the biblical principle of worship. By the way, if you want to check us out on the web, sinnersaint.org, you'll see the PayPal account there. If you've been benefiting from this broadcast, we invite you to go ahead and click on the PayPal account and contribute uh, to the discussions that are going here on uh, live radio week by week. week. John, let me interject something here. Uh, Listen, get on that website, sinnersaint.org. Check out the archives. Introduce your friend to the show. But I also want to say, hey, we got this church plant coming up here in Walnut, the city of Walnut with Pastor John. We're looking for people that are learning on the show, that are committed to worshiping God according to his word, to growing in the scripture and growing in their holiness of life. You call us, 866-99-UNITED, punch through to the Walnut Church Plant. Get in touch with us. We're excited to invite you to be a part of that. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. You want to learn more about us, call us at 866-99-UNITED, 866-99-UNITED. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED.
Reformation Radio. Theology with an edge. Come to worship God at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Hear the gospel faithfully preached. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Come and join us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. We are located at 226 West Colorado in Arcadia off the Santanita exit of the 210 freeway. Call us at 866-99-UNITED or visit us at urcsocal.org. Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian. I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. 